What do CEOs need to know about sales these days? A lot. Outdated sales strategies and tactics plague most companies today. Listen to what innovative CEOs and experts have to say about how to change all that with Sales Talk for CEOs. Are you preventing sales? If you've been to my website or watched any of my posts, read my blogs, you know that I'm concerned about the fact that many CEOs are preventing sales, but they don't think they are. They don't even realize. So if you are one of those CEOs who is wondering, could I possibly be preventing sales? You're in the right place today. I am very excited to be interviewing an old friend of mine. All right, not old in age, but we've known each other a long time. Um, and he has written a new book called Businesses Don't Fail, They Commit Suicide. Now, wow, that is a powerful, powerful statement. Uh, but we're going to find out why he believes that and why he agrees with me that many CEOs out there may actually be preventing sales and undermining the thing they want the most, which is rapid sales growth and a high valuation for the company. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Alice. It's a joy. It really is a joy to be here. It's a, it's a special, special thing for me. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited that your book came out. I, I was, uh, you know, ecstatic when I got a pre-copy by email and then I got my signed copy in the mail and um, excited about that. Can't wait to tear into it. I've uh, read just briefly through it, but uh, I really want to hit on some of the points that are important to the CEOs listening and all of those who support the CEOs listening. But let's jump right into what you have found is that CEOs may be undermining sales. Yeah, there's there are some very specific points and there's some generic points. So I like to start with kind of the overarching big picture generic problem that most CEOs don't quite grasp. It's what I call clarity of purpose. And you have to believe, first of all, that the organization is there to serve a need to a consumer. Whether that consumer is a person or a business, you're there to deliver value. And that value should be what your entire organization is focused on. Right. Delivering value. When they focus on revenue, you can't focus on value. You focus on profit or dollar amounts or the size of the sale. The more you can focus on ensuring value, the more money you're going to make. Oh my gosh. Okay. I want to pause right there because there is nothing more important than what you just said. I say it a tiny bit differently, but it's exactly the same thing. We have to focus on successful customers, right? We have to make our customers successful. We have to make sure that they're successful using whatever product or service we sold them because having a customer is not enough. The right. customer needs to be successful, which means you have added the value. Otherwise, what is the point? This is so great because you're like my shill. I, I call, you know, everybody talks about the win-win, right? I don't believe in win-wins. I believe in win-win-wins. And sometimes it's a win-win-win-win. Because if my customer's customer isn't winning, my customer isn't winning and neither am I. Yeah. And let me just give you a little story. We had somebody, when we had the square tree, I, 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 that's where I was when we first met. That was a long time ago. And by the way, square tree is still in business. I'm very flattered oh. that they've been able to sustain. I sold that thing in 99. But um, we had a client who wanted to pay us a few hundred thousand dollars for a particular application. And we said, this is a waste of money. You do not need this. You have this tool. You can spend $8,000 on this tool and get all the benefit that you want. 
and you won't have technology that's bleeding edge and you won't have technology that your people don't understand and you won't have technology that doesn't integrate. Don't spend the money. And that turned into one of our best clients over the course of 10 years because it became very clear to them instantly that we weren't interested in their money. We were interested in their success. Yeah. And that what that did is that fueled my entire sales and marketing model for that IT company, which is referral. Yeah. Right. And, and that's why I have the assets and the, the wealth and the, the, the good life I have is because of that, the embrace and, and commitment to that belief that my job is to deliver value. And if I'm not doing that, it doesn't, doesn't work. So clarity of purpose and, and, and how does clarity of purpose and value fit? Well, there are three pieces to it. The first piece is here's the value. We, this is piece number one. Here's the value we deliver and here's who we deliver it to. And here's how we deliver it. That's the first piece of clarity of purpose. If you don't know who your market is, or what the value is, or how you're going to get it to them, you don't have clarity of purpose. The, the second is, how do we want to treat ourselves and our, our employees, our vendors, and our customers? It's the culture. It's your values. It's how you behave. And this is perhaps the most critical asset for any organization because, and I say this, we have, we're putting a package together to do this. There's only one thing you have that your competitors can't replicate. Only one thing, your staff. They can buy everything else and do everything you do and sell it for half your price. But if your staff takes care of people in a way that they like doing business with them, that's an unbeatable competitive advantage. And the third is you have to have a reason for people to want to be in the company. So you have to have something that you can say, Come to this company, work for us, and be a part of something that's bigger than you that you care about. So let me give you an example. One of the companies that I work with, and um, full disclosure, uh, uh, I'm on the I'm on the board, and it's it's a pretty good sized company for what it is. It's an educational company. Uh, it's a public educational, publicly funded, 80 million uh, budget, uh, 500 employees, 8,000 students. We have a goal of changing the way education works in this country. People come to work for us because they want to be part of that. They feel the education system isn't serving their children and isn't serving their community. And we have business people that participate because they feel it isn't serving the workforce and giving them properly prepared people to come work. So that's that third piece. You've got to have something that makes people want to come and be a part of it and feel like they have a role in your success, which leads me to another point that I know is dear, near and dear to your heart. Every employee is a salesperson. And if you don't have people who are committed to what that organization is trying to do, committed to the success of the customer and willing to behave in a way that the organization says, this is how we treat people, then you don't have the right employees. And when you do, this is like, warm butter and a hot knife. It's just amazing when you see it. Yeah. So let's, let's take each of those three and let's talk about the way that CEOs prevent sales, or as you say, undermine the sales based on those three, right? What are some of the things that you've seen that CEOs do and they don't even realize, right? that that is making it really difficult for their company to increase their sales, mainly because they're simply not focused on the customer, making sure the customer gets value and is highly successful so that their customers can be successful. So let's right. just break it down, starting with clarity, right? And what are the things you've seen? Well, one of the things that's one of the ugliest and it tends to get worse as the organization gets larger, is that it's very easy to have a CEO 
in a position of being the evangelist for the company. They're not involved tactically. They're involved strategically. And when you have big sales or critical sales or large dollar amount sales, anytime there's a high level of risk, there's always a desire to bring that CEO in, right? I mean, it's not going to happen with Chrysler, but if you have a, you know, a reasonable size company in this in this country, you know, several thousand employees, et cetera, there's that bringing the, the CEO in is always a wonderful thing. The problem is that the CEO is typically too far removed from the sales process to know when they're stepping on toes. The CEO is often unfamiliar with sales and marketing policies and procedures, particularly when it comes to salespeople, particularly when it comes to commissioned environments. It's so easy for them to come into an environment and make a comment or make a commitment or make an observation that's in conflict with a policy. And all it does is it makes you look like you have either an idiot for a CEO, an idiot for a sales manager, or a company that doesn't communicate. And that's right. a red flag, right. right? That's what I call a yellow light. That's when people say, wait a minute, we got to slow down here. And one of the one of the funniest stories for me, because it was so blatant, it was just, it was just embarrassing for me when I when I saw it. The CEO went and took out an executive for lunch, and the sales the sales manager actually was a it was a it was a C level position had put in a policy on expenses for meals because there was some abuse and it was causing some problems. The CEO took this guy out who was the buyer and knew he liked wine, and the CEO was a wine aficionado. So he's bought three bottles of wine for 1600 bucks for lunch and got a lot of people in a lot of trouble because he didn't conform to the lunch policy. Isn't that amazing? I've heard much worse than that, honestly. And CEOs coming in and taking over sales calls happens frequently but I'm going to say this, I, I want to share with everyone, how do we fix this, right? Because everyone who listens to me on a regular basis knows that I am a firm believer that the CEO has a role in sales and that that role changes as the company matures. But one of the things that a CEO should always do, of course, is be very close to the customer so that we can feel very confident and comfortable calling them in to talk with a customer group or a prospect group as the subject matter expert, as the visionary of the company. But let's break this down. When they show up and take over, as you said in your story, it doesn't work. When they show up and break all the rules that the salespeople right. are not supposed to you know, break, doesn't look good. Sellers and the sales leaders especially need to have guidelines. Here's when we bring the CEO. Here is how we bring the CEO. Here is the follow-up from bringing the CEO. So I have a company that's, you know, I'm a $30 million company. I'm selling something that's hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions over the lifetime of the customer. Uh, I am, you know, smaller and I'm selling to this company that's maybe a $20 billion company, right? And there's a lot of risk in a $20 billion company buying from a $20 or $30 million company. And we need to mitigate some of that risk. One of the ways we can do that is certainly by bringing our CEO in and having uh, him or her share that vision, right? And mm -hmm. share some thought leadership and ask some really good questions of the senior leadership of the company that's buying. Mm -hmm. In order for that to happen, the CEO has to have been staying close to the customer and how the product's working and what's going on and all of that. And the sales leader has prepared the sales rep very well to, with a, you know, built a pre-call plan, you know, of how the call is going to go, the flow, the questions, 
who's going to be doing which part of the call. And they have a meeting with the CEO prior, right? And go through that call plan and tell the CEO what role they want the CEO to play, what questions they'd like the CEO to ask, and what type of information they'd like the CEO to deliver. The CEO is also completely briefed on who that company is, why we can solve their problem, who are all the people involved, right? So now the CEO walks into a situation with the seller and maybe another subject matter expert and the VP. They're on the call with several of the people involved in making the decision from the buying side. And now we have a great call. We put our CEO in a great light. The CEO delivers value, right? (laughs) Imagine that. And we look really good. We've mitigated some of the risks because we look strong in the eyes of that company that's buying from us. And then after that meeting, imagine right now, if we make sure that the CEO is connected to the other senior leaders and they have the CEO's contact information, know that they can reach the CEO and the CEO might even write, you know, a lovely note stating how, how wonderful it was to meet everyone and be able to understand their problems and their vision clearly. And, and we're delighted that we can help them. Imagine if it went like that, instead of what you and I could sit here for literally hours and tell stories about CEOs who undermine salespeople, not deliberately, not on purpose, certainly. And who actually prevented the sale for not showing up the way they need to. So let's not do any of that. And let's instead have, our sales leaders and our salespeople preparing our CEOs. All right, let's go for another one. What's another way that you've seen uh, CEOs undermine the sale? Sometimes CEOs put pressure on a fulfillment department or a sales department to make sales when the fulfillment department isn't able to deliver. (laughs) So one of the clients that I had had developed a stunning software package and they were just getting the thing out. It it was for governments and it was starting to get popular nationwide. They had gotten a few key clients and they suddenly got a whole bunch of demand for this product. And it was a very, very complex product. And it was a very large um, implementation period, almost like an ERP system back in the nineties that kind of level of complexity, you know, you pay 5 million for it and it takes 5 million more to get it up configured and installed. And they were pushing for sales and the sales department was making the sales, but the fulfillment department didn't have the staff to fulfill. They couldn't hire them fast enough. Sales was making time commitments that weren't realistic. When fulfillment hired people, they needed to be trained. So they ended up doing three things. First, they failed to make to deliver equipment when the salespeople said it would. Second, they were failing to implement when the implementation was scheduled. And third, they were implementing with bad implementation, so the systems were failing. And they lost several multi-million-dollar clients because of primarily the when what happened was they started pushing out and saying we can't do this. Yeah. Because when you're you know when you're into somebody already. It's hard for them to to say no. So they started pushing back on the front end before the the sales were consummated and people said, no, we're going to cancel. We don't want to wait that long. And they just got out of sync. It was because the the, the CEO was pushing for revenue. Right. Well, and oftentimes CEOs do push for something, and that is their job to some degree without really understanding the complete impact of it, right? right? And I see it every day. I see CEOs who want sales to just go sell. They want scale. They want that hockey stick effect, right? They want sales to shoot up. And they say things like, don't worry about capacity. We'll, we, that's a good problem to have that we don't have capacity. We'll get the capacity if you go sell the stuff. Well, as you and I both know, capacity cannot catch up with sales typically. And that capacity is an investment that has to be made and the sales have to be in tandem or at least not too far ahead of that capacity building. 
as you and I both know, when a customer's unhappy, they tell a lot of people. Everybody internally hears about it for sure. And probably many people externally hear about it as well. So we don't want to get a bad reputation. Um, and, you know, I've heard CEOs say things like, oh, people have short memories. It's no big deal. They'll get over it. You know, that's not going to hurt our sales. Just go out there and keep selling. Not true. Um, people don't have that short of a memory and they do spread the word. So we are not doing the first one, which is building successful customers when we outsell our own capacity. And that is truly a sales prevention, you know, department when your capacity cannot fulfill on what sales is asking them to do. And it really disappoints the customer and just makes everybody's life so hard. It so, ruins your reputation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the sell, it makes it hard for sellers to do their job because first of all, they have this horrible feeling about the last company they disappointed to go into their next sale with, right? And it's hard to shake that. Right. And secondly, they, they're worried and don't believe that if they make this sale, it will be any different than the last time. So that holds them back, right? And then perhaps the company they're talking to has heard <laughs> about what they did to this other company. So there's three strikes against them going out. Um, so it, it's really important to understand capacity. And right, capa here's sales and here's capacity. It doesn't have to be right here, but it certainly can't be here. So that, that can definitely be a big sales prevention. Here's another one that comes up often for me, Larry, and I'm wondering if you've got some stories like this as well. Um, legal becomes the sales prevention department. So lots of big companies uh, have contracts. Small companies have contracts. And on both sides, they're going to review the contract, right? And that takes a legal team. Well, lawyers are expensive. And so we don't want to have too many of on, on our payroll or have to outsource too often to them because they are expensive. But then I hear salespeople telling me that their contracts are sitting in legal. So we look at the average um, sales cycle, the length of the sales cycle, you know, and I'm starting to take that apart and say, well, which parts are taking so long? And then I get to legal and it's two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. When it's that up to four weeks, you're losing deals. Um, right. But it's certainly slowing everybody down. And then everyone's complaining about legal. But who is actually in charge of legal? The CEO. Right. And they are responsible for allowing this to continue happening. Right. Yeah. Well, so the answer is, yes, I do see that. And I, I, I'm not going to give you a story, but I'm going to give you a different way to think about it because I put it in a little bit of a bigger context to try to attack the same problem that occurs in other areas. And what that is, is the CEO has a favorite department or or silo and they focus on that silo and they give that silo special attention and special direction and they do it at to the harm of other parts of the organization and what you're talking about is when a ceo has somebody who's overly risk averse in a legal department and the legal department doesn't understand that they are part of the value chain that's in it's supposed to be making the customer happy right? It's not about reducing our liability. We shouldn't have liability. We want you to eliminate our liability, but we can't do business and have no liability. And it's not your job to tell us how much liability we're willing to tolerate. That's up to the CEO. Your job is to figure out how to make the customer happy. That means the CEO has to push legal to say, you need to be able to do this process in a predefined period of time. And this should all be part of the systems and structure within the organization, right? So one of the things that I often suggest is, let me back up. One of the reasons that these problems exist, in my opinion, is that CEOs don't like to ask questions or appear as if they don't know something. 
And there's that old saying, always hire somebody smarter than you, right? Right. If you're always hiring somebody smarter than you, why are you afraid to ask them? That makes no sense to me. The CEO should always play stupid. Always play stupid. They should always start with, what do you think? How do you think? What would you do? Even if they know what the answer is. So the CEO needs to go to the sales department and say, how do I help you with this sales call you want me on? The CEO needs to have that intimate relationship with the people who lead those groups because they're the ones that have the knowledge he or she needs to be able to fulfill their job as CEO, right? So the, the companies I've worked with where these problems exist, the CEO doesn't have time to have what I call intimacy with these different tactical areas of the organization. Get a little smaller, it's okay, you can do it. But when you get into these larger environments, it's sales job to say to the CEO, and it's the CEO's job to listen and to make it safe for that sales department to say, we're having a problem with legal. And then sales and legal gets together with the CEO or whoever handles that stuff for the organization. Mm -hmm and figures out how to put a policy in place so that legal is no longer a problem. And then the CEO has to say, you cannot do this. You are undermining everything we are here and stand for. So to me, I always go try to find my, I call it symptoms masquerading as issues. And, and I call that a symptom masquerading as an issue. The CEO hasn't ensured that the organization is properly structured so that every department understands how dependent each one is on the other. Because those legal people, nobody ever says to them, you know, the only reason you have a job is because these salespeople are selling. <laughs> they don't think that way. Lawyers don't think that way. They think we got a job because these guys have liability and they need to protect their liability. I don't care where the money comes from. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And I feel like uh, what needs to happen in organizations is more communication. I mean, how often does your legal department and your sales department get to sit together, have lunch, chit chat, and talk about the customer, how the contracts are going, what their ideas are, how to reimagine what they're doing next. How often does that happen? I'm going to say probably never. How often does sales get to sit with finance and accounting and, and learn about what they do and what their struggles are with customers? And then vice versa, have the sellers say what their struggles are. And what struggles happen when the two merge, right? So, for example, you know, another place where uh, CEOs allow this kind of undermining is with finance and accounting. It's just a, a battlefield sometimes. The sellers are doing their work and getting to the close. And then, of course, they've had to wait for the contract. Now they finally have the contract. And now, the accounting department is saying, oh no, we can't take that type of payment or we can't do this or we can't do that. It's got, and the, the seller's like, are you kidding me? I'm ripping my hair out now. I made this deal. I finally got it through legal. And now finance is slowing me down again because they have policies and they follow those policies to the T and, you know, understood. We got to have policies in companies, but if, if sales could sit down, sales and sales leadership sit down with accounting, finance and finance leadership and talk about it, maybe we could reimagine the way that it could happen. And then once again, it wouldn't be the customer's problem to try to figure out, you know, how to work with our finance system. Oh, we don't take checks or we don't take credit cards or we don't do bill.com or we do only do bill.com. Wow, do you want my money or not? You know, and I'm paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Figure out how to take my money, right? But it gets back once again onto the sellers. And the only person in the organization who can make that stop is the CEO. They've got to orchestrate the conversations, they've got to listen to both sides, and they've got to help people come up with reasonable compromise about how things can be done so that the sales are just not stalled at all of these different places. And right. another area is with collections, and I'm sure you've seen it. So it's coming uh, close to time to renew. And when the salesperson, you know, hopefully they've been doing their touches every month, every month, you know, they know that things are going well. But 
let's say maybe it was never mentioned or maybe they weren't doing that and they find out, you know, the customer hasn't paid their bill or that um, accounting has messed up the billing several times. Now, am I going to renew with you? You can't even get my billing straight. Or you've been really nasty to me because I paid my bill late one month <laughs> or whatever it might be. So I see these kinds of things happening in organizations as well. And I think when we don't stay on mission and have the clarity that you started off talking about, we're here to serve our customer, to bring them value, to make sure they're highly successful with what we sold them, right? right. And to so that they can be successful with their own customers. If we lose sight of that, all of these things happen. And you know, Alice, to me, when I look at the CEO, I see the CEO as being the person responsible for figuring out how to make all these people work together as a team. And, and that's where the whole piece of engagement comes in. Because when you're engaged, you care about what's going on in the organization. And when the salespeople, one of the things I've done with a number of my clients is I've had them take people throughout the organization and say, where does your work product come from? When you do your work, your job, where does your stuff that you do come from? Go talk to that person. Yeah. Ask them what's going on and how they create what you get and see if there's something you can do to make that work better. And then talk to the person you give your work product to. So everybody's talking to the people on their left and their right and saying, what am I, is this work for you? And if you do that, and if sales is in that chain, those needs will get communicated throughout the organization. But that only happens when the CEO says, I want you to understand, number one, why you're part of our sales team. Yeah. This yeah. is why. Because without this link, the sale doesn't happen. And it doesn't matter where you are in the link. If you break that chain, the sale doesn't happen. So you have to do your job well. And it's the CEO's responsibility to make sure people understand that and then to, to provide the oversight, the accountability to ensure that those different areas of the organization are actually communicating and looking for ways to make each other's jobs easier so that all the effort they put into serving the customer is with the least amount of friction. Not without friction, but the least amount. Why add friction, right? So to me, no, Larry, seriously, I just have to chuckle I, because like as a sales leader, my job is always to remove the friction, right? Yeah. Whatever I can do to remove the friction, but I can't remove the friction unless the CEO agrees that the friction should be removed, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. It's it, it, one of the things that I am so very, very proud of is there's been a few times when I've come into clients who had been successful for many, many, many years, um, typically at least 20 years, often longer. And they've never had any, any losses, right? It's always been growth and profit. And suddenly they're starting to lose money and they go, oh my God, what's going on? What's the problem? And then they have somebody who's in, the, in a leadership role who starts becoming a problem. And then they have a department that starts throwing politics into the mix. And then all of a sudden you got, the world is in a turmoil. And what actually ended up happening was the organization grew to a point where the controls that were in place were insufficient to manage the growth. So when you put new controls in place, you end up reducing whatever flexibility was in the system. Yeah. Not that you get rid of it, but you reduce it. And that reduced flexibility creates hostility yes. because there's a loss of control. And that tends to do two things. It, it's, it's the reverse of the Peter principle. The organization has grown beyond the capacity of the individual, right? It's not the individual promoted to their level of incompetence. It's the organization has grown to a size where the level of the individual is not competent to do the job. And the CEO's job is to be on top of all of this stuff. Yeah, and yeah. sales just happens to be the tip of the iceberg, right? That's what's sticking out of the water. Everything else is under the water. And if you take what's underneath the water, what happens to the iceberg? It goes under. Well, it's the metric, right? By which we 
live and die. Those, those sales numbers get reported every month, no matter what. This just really takes me back to the main point, which is that every employee needs to understand their role in sales. So let's get real practical right now and give these CEOs some advice on how could they, they can make this happen. So just talking to them and telling them, hey, I expect you to understand your role in sales and you know, giving them some why is great and put, putting into the mission, that's all great. But let's get really practical now and talk about some things that work that a CEO can do. For example, as I was talking about earlier, insisting that we have interdepartmental you know, conversations that are open and without judgment where we can just freely talk about some things. Now, this is going to be hard at some organizations because there's a lot of pent up frustration and anger and, and, you know, these, those salespeople, you know, they're just always doing this or that accounting department, they make my job so hard. Right. So if you've got a lot of that, it's going to be harder, but somehow you've got to start the conversation. So you got to get people in a room, get the leaders in a room, get them to agree, get them to have some conversations, and then actually let the people who do the job every day talk about how it is to do their job and how we can help each other. Having those real conversations every, you know, every so often, get started and then do them periodically. Don't think, well, I did them once. Well, things change. So you're going to probably have to do them at least twice a year. How have this things changed? Is this still working? Could we make it even better? Could we reimagine the way we do it completely, right? So those conversations, what are some other things that you've seen work to help everyone in the company really feel that they do have a role in sales and that they can make or break these relationships that feed us, right? That bring in the revenue. Right. So, um, what you talked about requires some advanced work to make it successful. And I strongly suggest that you not make these occasional, you make them scheduled. And it's based on the sales cycle for your product. So you want to make sure that you're not interfering with the high levels of activity on the sales cycle or the manufacturing cycle or the delivery cycle of whatever it is you're delivering. But the, let's figure out where the starting point is. The starting point is you got to have the right culture because if you don't have the right culture, you can't say, this is our culture. We need to follow our culture and have open, honest conversations. That's the first step. The second step, and, and there, there's some overhead to this, but once you create it, the problems go away. This happened to me with a public television station that was one of my clients when they were transitioning from analog to digital and they weren't sure about which digital to go with. And there were three groups within the organization. What I had them do, this is the first time I had anybody do this. They, they did a, a map, a, a, like a, an entity relationship diagram, if you're familiar with technology lingo and ERD, that shows how each area of the organization is connected to every other area of the organization and what transitions, what interacts between them. So then they could, any, any two groups could sit down and say, we're over here and they're over there. And, oh my God, look, this is how we connect. When people, you've got to have that visual. Without that visual tool, people don't get the, you can't do it with just talk. Right. They have to see if, the, if what I do here doesn't happen, that sale doesn't happen. <laughs> so you've got to have that culture. You've got to have that map. And then you've got to have the schedule, the routine interaction, and you got to give them a reason to meet. What's the objective of the meeting? The objective of the meeting is to share the changes that are taking place in your department and how it's affecting your workflow so that you can share it with your colleagues to see if it might affect theirs. Yeah. Right. And when you do that, suddenly it's not personal. It's about here's what's changing for us. Is this going to impact you? What's changing for you? How will it impact us? And if people know it, they begin to develop a confidence that when a problem arises, if it's internal, they're going to have an opportunity to talk to the other people and get it fixed. And this is the CEO's job is to say, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And then they have to be an observer, not a participant, but an observer on a regular basis. Sometimes it's called sponsorship. 
Sometimes it's called accountability, but it's a way of saying that this is important to me as a CEO, that I give you every tool you need to be successful in yeah. your job as a salesperson, because you're all salespeople, because if any of you fail, no, there ain't no sale. And this is how I do it by yeah. sponsoring these meetings and sponsoring this activity. So the we culture has to be built first. Yes. And then you can have these safe conversations. They're prepared for, they're scheduled, and they're ongoing. Right. And it, it, when you say it has to be built first, I've seen it happen where it doesn't get built first and it lasts for a period of time, but it's not sustainable. Right. It's like trying to fix the airplane in the air. Take yeah. the time to get it right. Yeah. Take the time to get it right. So another thing that I've seen done very successfully is having all employees have some contact with the customers. I've seen this happen through a customer event where the customers are all invited once a year to a fancy or not so fancy event of some type where there's some entertaining going on, some learning going on, mingling and meeting, and all of the employees are invited to come at some point during that client conference and meet people. So they get to meet the real humans, right? right. The sellers meet occasionally, but they may not meet. And then uh, another way to get everyone to know the customer is to do customer interviews and to record them and have everyone in the company have access to those or to play one or two of them at an all company meeting once a month, you play a short five minute clip from a customer talking about why they buy, uh, you know, why they love the company or talking about a problem they had with your company and maybe how it was fixed. So everyone gets some access to the customer that way. And then those that are closest to, um, the sale, but not doing the sale. Uh, I've seen it happen very successfully where those people go with salespeople on calls as the subject matter expert, or if maybe they're marketers, maybe they're engineers, but they go out and meet some of the prospects. They go on site, they get on the Zoom calls, they watch the demos or participate in the demos. But as a CEO, if you can have your company brainstorm all the opportunities right. that your employees can have to have some touch with that customer, either in person or recorded or live on Zoom. That can be amazing as well. And is there anything else that you've seen that really helps the employees understand their role in sales? Because I think we, we just maybe don't know how to make that happen. Well, one of the things that's kind of what you said, but not quite, and again, it requires the right organizational structure. It's about having the customer come to the company. That's always been the best, in my opinion. When you have staff go to customer events, there's, I find a lot of risk. I don't mean to contradict you and what you're saying is right. It's just that normally those customer events involve alcohol or involve some form of entertainment. And when you bring employees into that environment, it can be problematic. And I've seen more trouble with it than I've seen benefit. Where I've never seen a problem is when you have an open house and you invite customers into your office or your building. And that's where the real power is with this interaction. Because when a customer comes in and sees somebody who's doing some work, they go, oh, my God, I didn't know that's how that happened. Or I didn't know that's how you did this. Or I didn't know this was done this way. And they start to have empathy for what you do. And the employee sees, oh, my God, I have people who are actually appreciative of the work we're doing. So that's a different way to interact, right? Yeah. Because, and, and so that's always my recommendation. If you can get your customer involved in your the business of you doing business, you're getting so much more benefit because you're getting it on both sides of the aisle as opposed to just bringing yeah. the employee to the customer. Yeah, that sense? I agree. If you can bring your customer for a visit now, not all businesses fit that, right? There's nothing right. to see when you come there, but still people like to come to your office and 
be wa walked around to meet people. And these are the people who, you know, in accounting, these are the people in engineering, and then sit in the conference with room with you. They love that. If you have manufacturing, though, it's even better. They can walk around, let them have a chance to talk with people. Um, back to those client conferences, though, I do hear what you're saying. And we always want to put guidelines around how we act at events. Um, the kind of client conferences I've seen that are very strong are when there are clients coming together. So they network and mingle as well. There are uh, day-long events with speakers and chances to interact. And it's a controlled environment. It's not just entertainment. Um, right. So I agree with you. Be careful on the entertainment piece, but but having a client conference with sessions and and panels and interaction and your customers come and your employees come is can be very very highly effective. So I think all of those things that we've mentioned are positive ways to help everybody in the company know the customer better and understand their role with the customer and like you said, have some empathy for them as well, right? So um, there, are, there are probably many more and, and Larry and I would be, either one of us would be willing to talk with you about how you can help employees understand their role in sales. All right, so let's, let's wrap this up with um, something that you do talk about in the book. And it, it speaks to some of the things we've been saying, but let's hone in specifically on mission statement and why incorporating your mission statement into everything you do, but into your sales process, which really is the buyer's process, right? What they're doing to buy from us. How can that help attract customers? Well, first of all, people want specificity. When a client wants to buy something, they want to know that the, that the person selling to them is selling what they want to buy. They don't want a bait and switch or they don't want something close or it's not quite what you want, but it'll do the job for you. When you use your mission statement to talk about the value you deliver, you're no longer talking about a product. You're now talking about, here's how you gain value. And this is the value we deliver to you, the who we deliver this value to. So you're calling out a market, a calling out a very specific market. So the people in that market go, oh, this is for us, and this is the value. You haven't even told them what product you're giving them yet or what service you're giving them yet. But immediately they're like, they're talking to me, right? So it's very personalized, right? And the last piece is how we deliver that value to you. It's like, oh, they're really paying attention to my needs. So immediately you have just greased the chute. When people hear that, they feel like you are the company for me. And here's, here's, that's one side of it, but here's the other side of it. How many times have you gone to a restaurant and said, you know, I like that thing on the menu, but could you do this for me? And usually they'll go, sure. Or you go into a store that's selling something and you say, you know, I want that, but that's not quite what I want. You have something close. People want to have their problem solved. If they think you're talking about something that's close to who they are or close to what they need or close to what they want, they'll say, that's great, but I need something a little different. Can you do that? So it'll attract more than just the bees you're targeting. It'll attract everybody around them because of your clarity, because of your specific, because you're speaking to a very specific piece of value to a very specific market in a very specific way. And it just, you know, Alice, I talk about this stuff. I'm sure you've seen it. it. I've been watching this for 30 plus years. When people do this, sales just grow. It's like, what the hell is going on? All we did was change our marketing a little bit. It wasn't that much. We've been saying this stuff all the time anyway. But suddenly you get focused and you get clear and you get pointed and people hear it different, right? Yeah, I think the mission statement is critical, but I fear that many, many companies do not have a mission statement that really speaks to the value they provide to those they serve. And it doesn't speak to their success. So to use your mission statement in your marketing and sales 
um, you would first have to go back and revisit that mission statement, right? As a CEO oh, with your senior geez. team, <laughs> right, Larry? They have and to. They need some help with that, you know. But they might need buy, some help with that. And if you buy and, the book, all it's everything you need is in there, right? Right. So I think that understanding why you exist and who you serve is critical. And that needs to be revisited frequently. And everyone in the company needs to be able to state it. This is why we exist. And this is who we serve. Well, you know, there's something about that that I want to mention. This is kind of a, an interesting thing. Business wants stasis. They want dependability. They want predictability. They want to be able to anticipate. They don't like surprises. Every business lives in a world of constant change. So you have this turmoil that's getting more and more tumultuous every day. That's the, that's the environment that these businesses live in that want stasis, which is where friction comes from. And what happens if you're not careful is the customer's industry shifts away from you and you lose sight of the value to your customer. So constantly focusing on your purpose and that value is critical to your long-term success, right? And if you're not sure what it is, go ask your customers. They will tell you why they bought from you. They will tell you why they chose you. So if you need to do a voice of the customer survey, do it. Find I someone and do that. Right? Customer advisory groups. I love those. And customer advisory groups. So important. And that's another way. There you go. To get um, people from your company uh, to understand the customer. You can have a customer advisory group and different departments can interact with that customer advisory group. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Larry. Well, winding up here, this has been fascinating. Um, love talking with you about this. And again, the book is businesses don't fail. They commit suicide. And it's because sometimes we don't realize what our actions are actually creating in terms of a ripple effect, right? And so get Larry's book. And Larry, tell us how uh, everyone can find you. It's really very easy. If you can remember businesses don't fail, just put a .com after it. Businessesdon'tfail.com. And of course, there's my website. There's all kinds of links and stuff. I'm pretty easy to find online, but they, they, it's easy to remember businesses don't fail and put .com after it. And we don't want your business to fail. So if there's ever any questions we can answer, please reach out. We're always here to help. Thanks so much, Larry. I really appreciate you being on the show. Can't wait to finish reading your book. And I just wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much. It's been a joy. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and we'll see you next week.